0: Hello and welcome to SLAS New Matter. I'm the scientific director for SLAS, Mike Tarcelli. And joining me today, an esteemed guest, Dr. Imran Haq, VP of Data Science at Recursion Pharmaceuticals in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. How are you, Imran? I'm doing great today, Mike. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Same challenge as we ask all our guests. Can you describe what the heck you do for the world, for the company in 10 words or less?
1: Sure. So uh, Recursion, uh, we call ourselves a digital biology company, industrializing drug discovery. Uh, So that's six words. Uh, I'll go a little bit over and say what that (laughs) means is that uh, we apply large-scale experimentation and machine learning to really industrialize drug discovery. And at Recursion, I lead the data science function, um, which is an integrative group that brings together software engineering, biology, high-throughput automation, chemistry, in order to make that machine go and actually provide the algorithms taking the vast amounts of data that we generate and actually turn that into
0: actionable results to advance drug discovery programs. Cool. A little bit more than 10, but I'm going to give it to you. Thank you for that. I, and Now, you said a lot of terms in there, and I want to pick it apart a tiny bit. You said software engineering. You said data science. You said chemistry, biology. Um, you said looking at large data sets. You said drug discovery. Tell me about roles where that's all integrative because I would argue that 99% of the people in the country probably don't do roles that integrate all those disparate things. So tell me what it's like to work like that.
1: Uh, it's really amazing. And I think you know, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Recursion is I think they're unique in, or I think we are unique in the way that, uh, that, that we've been able to do that. I think if you look at traditional biology and, and traditional pharmaceutical companies, you'll often end up with companies that are... you know. Dominated or, or led by a, a biology focus or, or a chemistry focus. and you know when tech companies have tried to come into this, they'll often come up dominated with a tech focus. The thing that's really great about what we've built a recursion is the ability to bring these together into a synthesis, and and that's what the data science department is all about. So the folks in my department are you know coming from educational backgrounds that are coming from the biological sciences, sometimes coming from math or, or statistics but then are working hand-in-hand with their partners in other departments, whether, you know, they're folks in our core ops and high-throughput screening department, you know, working on designing and executing the experiments and making sure that they're coming through, you know, fast and with high quality. Mm -hmm. Whether they're working with biology and developing new phenotypic models for drug discovery or trying to, you know, advance the sensitivity of those models. Working with their partners in chemistry to actually take compound hits and move them forward um, to new generations with greater potency or, or better abilities. I think the, the thing that's really different about recursion is that you have all these folks working together rather than working in these individual silos.
0: It's a value that we call one recursion. One recursion, excellent. And, and of course, all in one room, sounds like, or, or in one team. So tell me a little bit about collaboration across these normally siloed functions. How does information flow? Does one group do its work and then throw it over the fence to the other group? Or do you all sit in the same room? Or is there a competitive aspect? How does it work? Well, we used to all
1: sit in the same room. And for the last few months, I think now we've been uh, scattered across you know, 150 to 200 different houses all <laughs> in the area. But uh, no, so you know, the, the way that it's set up is we have these cross-functional teams right, and, and these different focuses on things like the scale and development of our pipeline. right? So you know, a group that involves folks from automation, from software engineering, from data science who are all focused on one unique output, right? How do we get the best data as quickly as possible in order to move our programs forward? Other groups that are focused on drug discovery that have uh, members from data science who are responsible for getting the data and transforming it and developing algorithms, as well as biologists who are subject matter experts in the particular disease area that we're working on. And medicinal chemists who know how to take those compounds and actually modify them or advance them through the programs. So rather than having say, you know, well, here's an automation team that's going to run your experiment and then shovel data over the wall, and then you know, mm-hmm. whatever happens, happens. And then you know, a biology team that'll take a model and say, hey, you know, people with keyboards in the back, go figure it out and give it back to us. Um, <laughs> we really have these folks sitting together in the same project teams, attending the same meetings and working super interactively in order to move these
0: things forward. That's really cool. And, and I see, based on your background, for those in the listening audience who don't have Imran's amazing biography in front of you, um, I'll read up a little bit. Um, you have been a CSO at Freenome. You've been in various roles at Myriad Women's Health. And you also have been minted with a PhD and undergrad from Berkeley and Stanford, two places people have certainly heard of. So, But this is in computer science. So how did you make the leap from straight CS to I want to go do drug discovery and solve biological problems? Yes,
1: it's a it's a a fun story, and uh, it it actually starts back in first grade, where where we're going way back. (laughs) We're going, we're going, we're going all the way back. So, you know, I've enjoyed computers um, for a very long time. Uh, I've been programming um, since since I was a kid. You know, first writing, you know, little silly games, and then more interesting things. I've also had an interest in medicine and biology, and and the reason I highlight first grade is because I think that's when one of my uncles bought me this book called the Cartoon Guide to Genetics which may be out of print now. It's certainly out of date, but it's still fantastic and got me really interested and excited about you know, genetics and, and possibilities there.
0: Uh, uh, Imran, um, on my back shelf behind me, I have the cartoon guide to biochemistry. So I'm waiting I love it. That whole series is fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Um,
1: so you know, it, it captured my imagination when I was you know, six or seven. And it's, it's one of those books that like, the, the cover was just in tatters because I kept coming back to it. Anyway, you know, through academia, you know, in in undergrad, I I knew that I was interested at the interface between computation and biology. My PhD is in computer science, but I did it under the advisement of uh, Vijay Pandey, you know, in chemistry and structural biology, as well as Daphne Kohler in in computer science. You know, my focus there, even when I was starting my degree, was, you know, trying to bring together high-performance computing and, you know, large-scale data sets from chemistry and biology um, and my thesis ended up being on methods to scale up machine learning for chemistry for drug discovery. When I was graduating, I was trying to figure out what to do. And on the advice of one of my thesis committee members, Russ Altman, he said, look, you know, the two most interesting things happening right now are, are drugs and genetics. You know about drugs, go learn about genetics. Um, and so that's why I spent you know, five and a half years at council, you know, later acquired by Myriad and now called Myriad Women's Health working on genomics, um, and then a couple of years at, at Freenome, working on building um, machine learning-based assays on genomic data for a cancer diagnosis, and then coming back to drug discovery and, and therapeutics after that experience.
0: That's really cool. And, and what an interesting bit of advice from a person who you obviously uh, respected and, and took. <laughs> so that, that's amazing. Um, tell me, you've had obviously a couple choices to make here, but what's the most exciting moment in your scientific or data science career to date?
1: So I think there are, there are two that I'll, that I'll highlight, one that's older and one that's actually quite recent. Um, so one that's a little bit older is, you know, uh, certainly a superficial overview of part of my trajectory at, at council. When I joined the company, fairly soon after that, we published a, a paper looking at the the results from the, the tests that we were running, something called expanded carrier screening. The short version is that, you know, with Mendelian diseases, um, many people are, are carriers for one mutation in a gene that could cause severe disease if you had two mutations. Uh, and if you have a child but somebody else who is also a carrier, you're at risk of children having these severe diseases. Guidelines in that area were, were really focused on really narrow testing for particular mutations in people of particular ethnicities and so on. We were trying to blow that up because we knew that you know, new genomic technology would make it cheap and accessible to do this everywhere. So a few months after I joined council, we published a paper looking at, you know I think, twenty or 30,000 people. That was interesting, showing that, hey, these diseases are a lot more widespread than we thought. You know Guidelines didn't really change as a consequence of that. It wasn't big enough. The biggest achievement, I think, in my career at council was uh, in August 2016, we published a paper in JAMA where our total data set was, you know, I think 400,000 people, which we strictly filtered down to about 350, 360,000. So basically, one in every 1,000 people in the U.S. was part of our data set. And we showed conclusively that, you know, the the collective impact of these individually rare diseases was much larger than well-known diseases like Down syndrome. And in fact, the way that the medical guidelines were constructed led to very different outcomes as a function of what ethnicity you were which I think goes against you know, all the principles of medical equity that we care about. And the really cool thing is that after years of trying to deal with these guidelines, in January, so just four, months after, four or five months after this paper was published, ACOG, the American Congress of, of OBGYNs, which sets guidelines in this area of medicine, published a new medical guideline for the first time stating that expanded carrier screening was an acceptable strategy for, for dealing with genetic disease. Our paper was citation number one. So I think wow. you know, that, that whole trajectory of, you know, building the assay, building the data set, building the research, and then actually changing medical guidelines was just super fulfilling.
0: Sure. And in some ways it's almost more impactful than developing that first drug, right? Because you are impacting millions of people right away. Maybe not even the single disease that you intended to treat.
1: Exactly. And I and I think, you know, the, the thing that's really neat is not just looking at one disease, but you know, having to consider not just the data, but also, you know, the policy implications and the ethical implications about how we construct
0: those policies and how data can impact that. So you said you had two moments. So what's the second moment?
1: Yeah. So the second moment, uh, it's super top of mind for me right now, because this just came out uh, yesterday as we're talking, although I guess it'll be a little bit later as, as the, the listeners hear it. But at Recursion, you know, uh, I've been here for about a year. Uh, and we just put out a preprint that, that talks about the crazy platform that we've built and, and what we're able to do with it, from applications in you know general biology and immunology to new compound drug discovery, and the part that I'm personally really excited about because of the role that I've had in, in being one of the leaders on the project, applying that platform uh, in a really rapid fashion to discover repurposable treatments for COVID-19. Folks listening to the podcast uh, may be aware that I gave a talk um, for SLAS Transformed a couple of months ago where I described applying the platform. To look for uh, compounds that would be active against active viral infection, mm-hmm. um, we also had a second COVID project that you know now I can finally talk about where we're looking for compounds that could be used um, to deal with the the COVID nineteen associated cytokine storm, and I think the things that I'm really excited about um, coming out of this are twofold: one that you know we made these predictions on the basis of our platform, and we actually have quite a good track record in, in looking at the clinical trial data that's that's come out since. I forget the exact count, but I think we're like five for six on the large randomized clinical trials. And the one that we missed is it's it sort of cleared a limitation of the platform and, and why we wouldn't have gotten that. And We've gotten both positive and negative results correct on the basis of our platform. So I think that's just really exciting that we've built something that um, you know, we had hypotheses that this would translate well into into clinical discovery, and we're pushing our own compounds through trials. But COVID nineteen has given us a silver lining and an opportunity to like show like, hey, we can do this really fast, and the clinical data is coming out so fast to validate it. The second thing that's super exciting is that you know I think we've done more than than you know most others that I've seen in in taking an open science approach to dealing with this. So coming out with that preprint, we also put out a data release. of, I think. Six or 700 gigs of image data, you know, both on the immune system, uh, as well as uh, on, our, on our COVID-related data. The COVID data, I think, is, is like 800 gigs. And so it's just really exciting for me personally to be part of an organization that is willing to put itself out there and willing to contribute to the scientific community in making this data available in order to, to help solve this, you know, see if, if we can bring the community together and help solve this global problem as, as quickly
0: as we can. That's really cool and really important and high impact, and we do thank you for that. And uh, to drop a little nugget in, because I believe that we had your, your friends, Lena and Catherine, from Recursion on the podcast a little while ago, and I believe the data set's located at rxrx to ai correct?
1: That is correct. Um, so awesome. we've, we just released uh, these three data sets, RxRx2 with the immune system profiling and RxRx19A and B, respectively looking at um, SARS-CoV-2 viral infection and the COVID-19 associated cytokine storm.
0: And I'd love to go back and ask you a question about that then, which is, When people think about doing drug design and attacking that sort of outdated now lock and key mechanism, obviously you can imagine lots of different ways to attack the still not well-known COVID-19 architecture, spike protein, RDRPs, et cetera. But then the cytokine storm is is a new approach. It's it's not necessarily the disease itself, right? But it's a knock-on effect caused by the immune system. Tell me what it's like to sort of do a project where you're not after the causal root cause of the disease, but you're after the associated symptoms.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So to expand on that for for folks who may not be aware, I think it's becoming well understood that when people become really severely ill with with COVID-19, right, when they're landing in the hospital, they're on a ventilator and so on, a lot of the issues that are, that are happening there are not caused directly by the virus, but actually caused by the body's immune response to the virus, you know, tr- triggering you know, what's, what's, what's called a, a cytokine storm with all sorts of bad effects downstream. And this is something that we've seen, by the way, not just in COVID-19, but also certainly in, in SARS and MERS and also pandemic flus, right? So it's a really important problem. I think the thing that's really interesting is that the, these cytokine storms are multifactorial. Right, there have been a number of studies trying to look at individual components of this cytokine storm. Right, um, going after IL six was a really popular theory, you know, over the last few months. But I think, you know, you know, there there have been several phase three failures looking at anti IL six approaches. IL one RA is another thing people have been looking at. There's some early preliminary data that might be good, but when you look at the patient data, what you see is a derangement of a very large number of cytokines and chemokines, and I think the thing that's really exciting about recursion's data and recursion's approach is that we're able to actually use that entire patient informed blend, right? And not hypothesize if we have to go after a single target, but see, hey, how can we modulate the activity of these cells in response to the entire, the, the whole shebang, right? Um, and how can we get things um, that, that might work there? And as a consequence, you know, we identified compounds that we think might have activity. That you know go well beyond um, those you know single you know uh, IL one RA and IL six monoclonals as well as like the JAK inhibitors that people are looking at, um, and we've identified you know other mechanisms of action that people you know should perhaps look at in order to see if we could get activity
0: against this whole cluster of cytokines. And that's really cool. And, and you've just put out so many of the classic targets the JAKs, the ILs et cetera that you could imagine recursion in future auspices researching, right? Because as you said, cytokine storm is such a factor in many other human diseases. That's really great.
1: Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's just a really interesting area to work in. And you know, for me personally as well, you know, getting to bridge that gap between you know, patient diagnostic data and then take that forward amazingly
0: quickly into drug discovery is, is just super cool. That's great, and you know we could sit here and talk about <laughs> immune system biology and data approaches all day. But I got to ask you, what tips do you have for people who want to be you? So let's say there's a burgeoning data scientist out there that's in their first year of graduate school. What do you tell them? What should they learn? What skills should they be into? What papers should they read?
1: Sure. So I've got three broad tips here, um, and they all like factor. They're actually all factors of the first one, which is that communication and, and bilinguality is, is just really critical, right? This is a field that is at the interface of a number of different disciplines, and there's no way for one person to you know be the expert in, in all of them, right? I think that technical fields systematically in their education undervalue communication. Um, one of the things that I'm you know, really glad I had the opportunity to do um, was four years of high school debate, which made me really comfortable getting in front of a room and talking about things.
0: I can hear that now that we're talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, when you've got the opportunity, practice giving talks, practice working with people who are not from your scientific discipline and, and seeing if you can communicate effectively between those groups, right? So I think having that bilinguality, in my case, between, you know, computer science and statistics on one side and biology and chemistry on the other side, uh, has just been immensely valuable. The second piece of advice that I'd give is that, you know, particularly for folks who are coming from not a computer science background, but maybe coming from a, a biology or a chemistry or, or a you know, mechanical engineering and automation background, is that programming really is a superpower. The amount of amazing stuff that I've seen from, you know, people who are educated as traditional biologists, and, you know, maybe we're not, you know, software engineers working on setting up some large distributed system, but new enough to be able to go beyond, you know, the pre-baked scripts, you know, shipped by the instrument vendor or go beyond, you know, some simple Excel analysis and actually put together some Python or R. There's just amazing things that you can do, and and you'll find that it really unshackles you. And on the other side, you know, Computer scientists like really ought to, you know, get down and dirty with, you know, what's going on, you know, where their data came from, right? Um, because there, there are a lot of things that, you know, you'll spend hours and hours figuring out why your model won't converge, and then you realize, oh, the data was all garbage. And if I'd investigated a little bit further, I, I would have understand, I, I would have understood that, right? And so, you know, that that all just comes back to to making sure that you're comfortable in operating sort of across the breadth of disciplines that you're involved in and not focus just on staying in your one silo.
0: Gotcha. Get out of your lane, experience some other things. Exactly. That's really cool. Um, thank you very much for that. And those are all actionable, functional tips. So, so everybody listening, please take Omron's advice. And I have to know, what are you most excited to do going forward? I mean, what, what's the future for you for recursion? And how do you hope that SLAS can play a role there?
1: Yeah, so you know the reason why I came back to machine learning in drug discovery in particular was that I was really excited about the ability to have large-scale experimental data on which to build statistical models. But in particular, something that I think you have the opportunity to do in drug discovery that you don't in, you know, diagnostics, for example, um, is the opportunity to do large-scale interventional experiments, right, where you actually get to choose what you're changing in order to both you know, add constraint to your model as well as like, actually do the test to see whether or not your model worked. Sure. Um, so you know, with respect to you know, SLAS and, and member organizations and other you know, scientists and engineers who are part of it, the things that excite me most are technologies and methods that allow us to do more detailed, cleaner, lower noise experiments faster, right? Right how can I perturb more variables with precise control and observe the effects You know, fast, right? Um, because what we're going to need to do is, is run an enormous number of such experiments and collect an enormous number of such clean observations in order to really be able to build awesome predictive models Which, you know, my dream is that we'll be able to take those predictive models and feed them back into our experimental design in this kind of virtuous cycle. We already do some of it, but we're going to need to do more of it going forward in order to deal with the immense complexity of biology.
0: Okay there. So, so you you multiplexers, you <laughs> <laughs> microfluidics folks, you people who love label-free technologies and fluorescent dyes and cell painting, uh, Imran is looking for your help. <laughs> Sounds like you need some cleaner data and some much more automated runs at large scale in order to feed your beast.
1: Get me data that has you know, infinite signal to noise and infinite size and zero time to acquisition and, and, and you've got my ear.
0: No problem. We'll call you back in 20 years. No, teasing. Okay. Imran Haq, thank you very much for your time um, and for your motivation for speaking at SLAS Transformed and for just being a very interesting person to talk to. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a fun conversation.